Well, just a, just a question to start us out this morning. Uh, have, have you ever considered why in the world do we even have to believe in God? Like, why do we have to believe? Like, why wouldn't we just with 100% confidence know? Why would we, there ever have to be any question of any kind or any doubt? I, I never take my American citizenship, you know, into question. I never have to take it by faith. I don't wake up one morning and go, man, I just feel so American. I must be American, or I think there's enough evidence that I'm American. I don't ever question who my earthly parents are. And, you know, like, maybe, maybe I was adopted. Like, some of you, you had siblings that told you that growing up, even though you weren't, it wasn't true. Uh, so why is it with something so extraordinarily important like God, do we have to have faith? Why is it, is it something that's hard to believe? Why is it so difficult to believe? And within this group today, those of you in the room, those of you that are joining us online today, some of you have extraordinary faith. Some of you don't have very much faith at all. Some of you have lost your faith. Maybe some of you are trying to regain your faith. And some of us don't think you could ever really know. So why try? But we're curious. Because, because there's so many things that we experience in this life and that we see in this universe, uh, things that uh, within us that just cause us to sense this feeling like maybe, maybe there's more to this life than this life. But sometimes it's hard and it's confusing and there's so many competing voices. So let's just begin this conversation with the question, who needs God? I mean, do we really need God? Some of us would say yes, but we don't uh, live like it all the time. And some of us would say no, but we find, it completely, uh, we find it difficult to completely dismiss God. For a lot of people, the real question isn't who needs God. The real question is who needs religion? And, and more Americans than ever are giving up and backing away from religion. They would say, you know, we were brought up with religion has the answers. It is the solution. But as I look around the world and as I look around at what's happening in the world, religion isn't the solution. Religion is the problem. In fact, something interesting happened right after 9-11. Some of you were very young when it happened. Some of you weren't born yet. Some of you, though, you were like me. You remember exactly where you were when you first heard the news that morning and being glued to the TV as these shocking images were being broadcast live. Well, right after that, there was an initial surge in this country, especially around everything Christian and everything Jewish. In fact, that following Sunday after 9-11, churches were packed like even more than Easter. The second Sunday after 9-11, same thing. They were packed. Third Sunday after 9-11, back to normal. But people who hadn't been in church a long time or who weren't sure what they believed, they flooded into these churches. But about three, three Sundays later, it was back to normal. Then something else also like began like never before, and we've all been affected by it. There was sort of this uh, anti-religious surge that, be, surge that began to happen in our country. In fact, immediately following 9-11, neuroscientist Sam Harris, uh, he began to write a book that would eventually be published entitled The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. And this book is a scathing critique, not just of Islam, but of all religion. And he turned it into publisher after publisher after publisher. Fifteen publishers rejected his manuscript because the assumption was that an anti-Islam book would sell, but not an anti-Christian book. But he finally found a publisher, and that, that book skyrocketed to number four within a month on the New York Times bestseller list, and it spent 35 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. 
Now, uh, Christians hated this book. Okay, he got so much response, so much negative response from Christians, he published another book, A Letter to a Christian Nation. And it addresses specifically Christianity and Christians basically saying, you're the problem. You're the problem. Which, of course, Christians loved, right? They didn't respond to that. So the same year, Richard Dawkins published his famous book, The God Delusion. Some of you have read it. I read it years ago. Uh, I've read all of these books over the years. Uh, But at the beginning, Richard Dawkins tells the reader exactly what his agenda is, specifically why he published the book. He writes, I wrote this book, or if this book works as I intend, religious leaders who open it will be atheists when they put it down. And over 3.5 million people have purchased this book in 35 different languages, and an unauthorized Arabic translation has been downloaded over 3 million times in Saudi Arabia alone. The year after The God Delusion came out, journalist, late journalist Christopher Hitchens, he published his book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And again, this was just a scathing attack on all religion. And his argument throughout is religion. All religion is the problem. He writes, we keep on being told that religion, whatever its imperfections, at least instills morality. On every side, there is conclusive evidence that the contrary is the case. And that faith causes people to be more mean, more selfish, and perhaps above all, more stupid. And throughout the book, I will just tell you stupid is one of his favorite words. So his position is clear, okay? Now, for the next few years, along with uh, Daniel Dennett, these guys became rock stars. They became known as the Four Horsemen. Uh, They uh, were on late night television. They were on college campuses. They did TED Talks. They became YouTube sensations. Uh, Their debates were watched over and over and over. They've sold sold millions and millions of books. And what had already begun began to pick up speed and pick up momentum. And a significant percentage of people in our nation began to disconnect from all religion. In fact, so many people have disconnected from religion, from faith, and from God. There's actually a name for this group. They're called the nuns or the duns. You have to spell it right, okay? Uh, So the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who self-identify as atheists or agnostic, uh, as well as those that would say their religion is nothing in particular, okay? Over uh, roughly 23% of the U.S. adult population identify as nuns or duns non-affiliated, okay? And this may surprise you, but Wichita beats this statistic by more than double. Over 50% of those in Wichita check the none box. And about 35% of millennials and Gen Z would say, you know, we're theologically agnostic and apathetic. Uh, We don't know, we don't care, we just don't need it, okay? The nuns and duns that I know, that I'm in relationships with, they've said it's not that they necessarily find atheism all that attractive. It's just that we find religion extraordinarily unattractive. So we're just done. We're just done religion. We're we're just done with church. We're done with God. The God that we were presented with as children, we are done. Now, for some of you, you didn't know you had a category. Now you do. You can post it later. You can call your family. I know what I am now. I'm a nun. Make sure you spell it. Uh, and, and obviously, I can't speak for all religions, but the majority of nuns and duns in this country have migrated from the Christian faith and the church. And what I can say with confidence, 
after over 25 years in ministry, is the majority of Christians who have migrated into the none and done categories, it is the church's fault. If I could apologize on behalf of an entire group of people, I would apologize. Because it's people that do what I do. It's people, self-labeled Christians or evangelicals who have represented religion but not represented Jesus, which makes it our fault. Because when you open the pages of the four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read and look at his interactions with people, here is something that is undeniable. That is from beginning to the end. The people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. The person, Jesus, not just the miracle worker or the teacher who taught things. There was just something about Jesus that, who, that was just attractive. And people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and they liked, him, they liked him back. And the church is supposed to be a reflection of, or what's referred to as the body of Jesus. In other words, if Christianity is not compelling, if it's so easy to migrate away from, I, I am convinced it's because we have the wrong version. Which is one of the things that we're going to, uh, which convinces, and one of the things that convinces me is my own experience. My own experience with Christianity and church people. Some of my greatest wounds and conflicts have not been with agnostics and atheists. Or agnostics. But, but with church people, with church people, self-identified Christians. And the same is true for many of you, Right? And then there are the deconversion stories that I read, the deconversion stories I watch on YouTube, these videos, stories I've heard over a drink or over a meal with people who have migrated away from the faith. I've had three or four of those just within the last two weeks here in Wichita, shared by people who used to be, say they used to be Christian, they grew up in the faith, I grew up in the church, I used to go to church, I used to be a Christian, I'm not a Christian Anymore. In fact, a couple weeks ago, uh, one of the, our, our new lifers was sharing about a friend of theirs who created a, a separate Snapchat under a pseudonym so that they could share honestly about their deconversion because they're just terrified of how their Christian friends and family are going to react if they find out the truth. And sometimes, sometimes the migration is instant. Some, because of a tragedy, sometimes it's a process, sometimes it's a book somebody reads, Some, sometimes it's uh, new friends or moving to a new culture. Uh, but here's the thing, I have yet, I have yet to read or hear a story of deconversion from Christianity that actually has anything to do with Jesus. Or Jesus' version of what we call Christianity, which we will talk about in the next few weeks. But as I, as I listen to these stories, what breaks my heart, it just breaks my heart because as I listen to what they say, I think, wait a minute, I don't believe in that God either. You know, what you found so offensive about the church or that version of Christianity, I, I agree with you. I'm on the same page. The original first century version of Christianity never embraced the ideas that you find so offensive. And those things that you wanted to walk away from, the Christian faith should have walked away from a long time ago. So for the next few weeks, as arrogant as it might sound, I want to try to address and correct that. And to begin this discussion, to begin this discussion, uh, the, the, the starting point is today. It's going to be a, a conversation, it's going to be a six-week conversation. Uh, but the, where we're going today is very important because... When you step away from faith, you step towards something else. 
Logically, we get this. You cannot move away from one thing without moving towards something else. So it's important to understand, well, what am I stepping towards? So today, we're going to begin by going to the far edge of the conversation to atheism, to make sure that we understand current atheism. Not because so many have checked the atheism box or stepped across that line, but because so many people, especially in our country, some of you, definitely people that you know and work with, have stepped towards that line. Even some of you, you've been wrestling with doubts. You've been wrestling with struggles. You've been wrestling with your faith. Maybe you've been wrestling with some of the incredible ugliness that you've seen in and from so-called Christian, especially over the last few years around politics and racism and LGBT plus and COVID, and you're just done. And there are days I'm right there with you. And the good news is I'm not going to define any of this today by the Bible today. In other words, I'm not going to give you faith-based ideas or faith-based answers in response to fact-based questions. Rather, individuals such as Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and others, the new atheists, they have essentially updated atheism for us. So today's message is Atheism 2.0, this talk. And what they would want you to understand and what I would want you to understand is that atheism is not simply disbelief in God. Okay, there are some that would like to oversimplify and say that atheism is just lack of belief in God or in the gods. But in truth, atheism is a complex belief system that logically leads to some unsettling conclusions. Now, to be clear, unsettling is not a truth test. In other words, something can be very unsettling and completely true at the same time. For example, when uh, we were raising our four boys... Our oldest at the time, he was about 13 or 14. His room was downstairs. We were upstairs. My wife and I were sitting on the couch watching the TV. And over to the right was the one door, was down to the basement. Then there was a linen closet. We'd washed uh, all the towels, forgot to hang them up. He didn't notice. He got in the shower. He got back out. No towel. So he does what a 13 or 14-year-old boy is going to do. He comes, and we hear a thump, 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 thump. We're watching. The door opens, and a Dripping wet, butt-naked, 13, 14-year-old steps out. He ends up opening the closet, gets a towel, turns around, and goes back down. And it got really quiet for a minute. And my wife just slowly turned to me and said, when did that happen? (laughs) Puberty. Unsettling, but true. Okay, so it's not a truth test. Something can be absolutely true and unsettling. So my goal today, my goal today is to not convince you that atheism is wrong. It's not my goal. I simply want to get us on the same page. I simply want to get us on the same page as to what it means to be an atheist in the 21st century. And for those of you that are are thinking of uh, stepping away or you have stepped away, uh, but someone bribed you again with lunch or you'll meet somebody cute, whatever, whatever, to watch or listen to me today, I just want to hopefully broaden your thinking a little bit. Maybe raise a little concern, just a little, because, again, you can't step away from one thing without stepping towards something else. So today is about defining what that something else is. Okay? So uh, today is not an argument for God or for Christianity or against atheism. 
And today is the beginning of an extended six-week conversation. Again, today we begin on the far end of the conversation to understand what it means to embrace atheism in the 21st century. And there are at least six core things, and I'm not making any of this up, and I'm not pulling anything out of context. Google is your friend. I invite you to fact-check me, okay? The first one is the illusion of self, okay? As Sam Harris states, our conventional self of self, our, our conventional sense of self is an illusion. If there is no God, and perhaps there's not, there is no you. There's no self. Uh, uh, to help with that, a few years ago, Sam Harris interviewed Bruce Hood. Bruce Hood, is, uh, he's a director of the experimental psychology department at the University of Bristol. He's been a research fellow at Cambridge and University College London, uh, a visiting scientist at MIT, a faculty professor at Harvard. He has been awarded the Alfred Sloan uh, Fellowship in Neuroscience. So, Super smart. Okay, so Dr. Hood, he wrote a book entitled The Self-Illusion. Sam is interviewing him. He asked him, what is the self-illusion? And this is his answer. For me, an illusion is a subjective experience that is not what it seems. Most of us have an experience of a self. I certainly have one, and I do not doubt that others do as well. An autonomous individual with a coherent identity and a sense of free will. But that experience is an illusion. His point is that in a world where there's nothing but biology, chemistry, and physics, your sense of personal identity is just an illusion. It's not real. Christopher Hitchens wrote a book entitled uh, Mortality. It was published the year after his death. He passed away in 2011 from pneumonia related to esophageal cancer. Uh, when he was diagnosed and he realized that this would end in death, he decided to write a series of essays. He was a journalist. He was an atheist. Atheist, he ended up writing seven essays that were put into book form, and they basically chron chronicle the last seven months, or the final months of his life. In fact, there's an eighth chapter just entitled Fragmentary Jottings, which are dictations captured by his widow, Carol Blue, because at that point, his ability to communicate was almost completely diminished. So you've got this guy... He's a journalist, he's a dying atheist, he's going out as an atheist, none of this like deathbed conversion. And in the book, he shares about conversations with his doctors uh, during his treatment. And his doctors kept saying to him, Christopher, your, your body is fighting, your body is trying, your body is reacting to. They kept referring to his body. And in the book, he says, I, I finally said to my doctors, I don't have a body. I am a body. See, if there is no God, if you and I are purely chemistry and biology driven by the laws of physics and nature, then Christopher, what he said, is true. Like, there's no Chad. There's just this lump of whatever that somebody named Chad, which is a name I hate, by the way. But I just imagine, you know, but imagine trying to live this way because I don't think you can, okay? But for a couple of weeks, what it would look like to live your life as if everyone around you, including you, is literally and simply nothing more than forms of chemistry and biology, driven entirely by the laws of physics and nature. I mean, if you have kids, like just bodies, the spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, your coworkers, your boss, your parents, nothing more than chemistry and biology. Just all of you, all of you, just bodies, all of my friends, just bodies. Just chemistry and bi biology driven by the laws of physics and nature. 
that there's no real me, there's no real you. Just biology. And see, it's nearly impossible for us to wrap our mind around that because the whole idea that there's a self, that there's something beyond biology, it's just so ingrained into our life experience. But he's right. If there, if there is no God, there is no real you. There's no self. There's just chemistry and biology and physics and nature. Now, that may be true. But it is one of the uncomfortable truths that you have to embrace if you decide there is no God. Or you don't need God. The second one is connected, and that is the illusion of free will. That in a world that is governed by the laws of physics and nature, there is no room for free will. Everything is determined. In fact, there's certain segments of, of, of Christianity that believe that. It's just everything is determined. You may have uh, felt the experience of choosing everything from what you ate for breakfast this morning to your educational path to the career path to who you decide to date or marry, whether you decide to tell a lie, whether you decide to tell the truth, that it is all determined. It's called determinism, that every decision you make is determined, and the idea that uh, of the idea of free it, can't co- co- it just can't exist or coalesce in a universe that's driven or controlled by the law of physics. In fact, a few years ago, Sam was, uh, he was talking about in one of his podcasts about he's often misquoted by Christians who pull him out of context and quote him out of context. He was kind of complaining tongue-in-cheek about it, but then he just kind of chuckles and he goes, but I realize I have no right to criticize my critics. Because they didn't have any choice. It was predetermined. They have no choice in the matter. So there's no freedom or free will. It's just determined. Every decision you've ever made, which you believe you freely chose it, is an illusion. Stephen Hawking, who was brilliant, he died about three years ago. Many of you saw the theory of everything, which was a very interesting glimpse into his life. Uh, And Stephen Hawking, he suffered from ALS, but he had an amazing mind. He was idolized by the great Sheldon Cooper. Uh, Hawking believed in the determinism. In fact, some of you got that one. Uh, in an essay, in a lecture, he, where he was basically saying, everything about the human experience is determined. Uh, he's saying this, but then he jokingly says, uh, but I have noticed that even people who claim everything is predetermined and we can do nothing to change it, look before they cross the road. Because again, it may be true. But when it comes down to it, it is, in fact, unlivable. You cannot live as if you and those around you are just biology uh, and that you can't control any of your decisions because if you try that, other biology is going to get a hold of you and lock you up for making the decisions you thought you were free to choose that you didn't really have. It's an unlivable view, but it doesn't mean it's not true. But if you're going to be atheist, if you're going to decide that there is no God, or God's not in the picture, this is the logical component of that belief system. The third is the illusion of value. We all believe in value. We exercise and leverage value all the time. Financial value, time value, people value, the value of people, the value of work, the value of exercise. I mean, the whole concept, there's a whole concept of value, but that's not scientifically plausible or possible in a world governed by, governed by physics because you cannot place value in a box or on a slide. Yet it's amazing that it's something that we leverage and talk about every single time we have a conversation, including this one. But it's an illusion. There is no actual value. There is only ascribed value. 
that in my predetermined way of thinking or living, I ascribe value to things. Now, this illusion of value combined with the illusion of free will is a big deal, okay? Especially when it comes to justice. Because in a world where there is no God, and there may be no God, where there is just physics, chemistry, and uh, biology, there is no actual justice. It's an illusion. So the moment that we reach outside of our biology to try and hold another biology, or what we would call a person, accountable to something, some invisible thing that we can't uh, put in a physics, chemistry, or biology box, we have appealed to justice. But justice is an illusion. It's made up. There's no real thing, such thing as justice. And what's fascinating, and if you're a nun or a dun, this may actually be a tenet of yours. Uh, if you're not affiliated, you, you would say, and some of you, you've heard this, uh, you know what, you're free to believe what you want, and I'll believe what I want, but don't impose your beliefs or your truth on me, right? And isn't this a dominant theme, especially on social media right now, whether it's about COVID or masks or vaccines or abortion or politics or sexuality, everything. Basically, this is the mantra throughout America right now, no matter what the subject matter. When it comes to truth, I have my truth, you have your truth, you leave my truth alone, I will leave your truth alone. Again, when it comes to our bodies, our sexuality, our money, our leverage of power, our sense of right and wrong, God COVID, politics, I mean, you have truth, I have truth. There is no such thing as universal truth. And you know what? That can work until it crosses the line into justice. You'll never hear anyone say, I have my justice, you have your justice. Don't try to impose my justice on me, and I won't impose my justice on you. No one will ever say that. Because when it comes to truth, you can have your truth. But when it comes to justice, I want you to be accountable to my sense of justice, right? In other words, when, when another biology, another person exercises their sense of truth and free will and ascribed value in such a way that we or someone we love has been violated or wronged or injured or assaulted or even killed, suddenly we have no interest in universal free will, do we? You know, that, you know, they were simply operating out of their own sense of truth and their own sense of ascribed value, their own sense of right and wrong. No, we want them held accountable. But I'm telling you, when you extract theism, you extract God from the equation, the outcome is we are left with physics, chemistry, and biology, determinism, and nothing more. The whole sense of ought and ought not and any moral or universal justice, it all goes away. It is might makes right. It is genuinely survival of the fittest. The stronger get to dictate for the weaker what is and is not right or justice. But in fact, there's no such thing as universal justice. It's just an illusion. And that may be true. But you cannot and you will not live that way. And the moment you begin to open your mouth to argue, you immediately appeal to this intangible, invisible thing that you can't put in a box or put under a microscope. But it's so real, we can't even have a conversation without it. And 
the new atheists, I will tell you, they appeal to this all the time. In fact, I'm pretty sure that my neighbors think I'm nuts. Because one of my favorite things to do is mow my yard, by the way. Uh, nice straight lines, smell. It's like one of the few things in your life that is like immediate satisfaction in a beer afterwards. So I'll be out mowing. And I'm listening to these interviews on my earbuds. And one of them will do what Frank Turek calls, which, by the way, it's a great book, Stealing from God. Because they will get out of their lane of physics or biology or chemistry or determinism. They'll try to appeal to this greater thing. They'll appeal to this illusion of value, of right and wrong. And when they do, I begin this animated debate with them while I'm mowing. I have to keep one hand on to keep it going. I'm going, no, no, you, Sam, stay in your lane. Richard, stay in your lane. All, you know, my neighbor sees me out yelling at my mower. I don't know. But I, I just I get so frustrated because I get in these like I'm debating with myself. Now, th those were the first three. The next three I'm going to go through real quick because they've been around for a long time and I have a clock. Okay, these are just kind of the basic tenets of atheism. So number four, something came from no thing. That something came from nothing. This is the big mystery. It's what happened before the Big Bang, which you can't say before because there was no time. So what happened after the Big Bang that there was suddenly time, matter, and space, and suddenly there were the laws of nature and physics that govern it all, but before that, no one knows. In fact, Richard Dawkins says that cosmology is waiting for its Darwin, referring to Charles Darwin that gave us natural selection and evolution, but we're still waiting for someone to come up with a plausible theory, a believable hypothesis that isn't so extraordinarily improbable that it falls into the category of impossible. We're still waiting on someone to come up with a theory that explains why anything exists. You believe, and, and maybe it's true, that something came from no thing. The fifth one is first life emerged from no life with no help. And again, you, you studied this in school. I studied this in school. You, you've read or heard, and because most of us are so far away from the problem, it seems so simple. The further away you are from any problem, the simpler it seems or it looks. And what could we get further away from than like first formation of life, right? So the idea of no life becoming first life, it just might seem simple and seem like a simple problem, but it's not. Because even the simplest form of life was very extraordinarily complex and it resulted in over 350,000 different kinds of beetles. Okay, so this isn't an argument for or against God, but... If you believe there is no God, and maybe there isn't, then you believe that first life emerged from lifeless matter with no help. To what Francis Collins, the leader of the Human Genome Project, referred to the digital elegance of DNA. And the last one, number six, natural selection is responsible for all life after the first life. That all life forms, all the variety that we see, all that have come and gone through the years, that natural selection is responsible for all life after first life. Now at the end of the God delusion, Richard Dawkins, he's making his case for this unguided, purposeless, but somewhat focused thing that's the invisible reason for why you're here. And when you read it, you might think he's actually kind of making fun of what he believes, but he's not. He's just trying to bring some life to this lifeless conversation, okay? And he says, and, and this, by the way, is perhaps the best description of natural selection from Richard Dawkins himself in context. He says, think about it. On one planet, and possibly only one planet in the entire universe, molecules that would normally make nothing more complicated than a chunk of rock 
gather themselves together into chunks of rock-sized matter of such staggering complexity that they are capable of running and jumping and swimming and flying and seeing, hearing, capturing and eating other such animated chunks of complexity, capable in some cases of thinking and feeling and falling in love with yet other chunks of complex matter. And he's not joking. This is his creative way of just trying to make us go, wow, that's amazing. Then he finishes, we now understand essentially how the trick is done, but only since 1859, referring again to Charles Darwin. And again, this may be true, that this invisible force that we refer to as natural selection, uh, the simplest form of life, became every form of life that has ever lived ever existed since then until now, with a lot of life forms being extinct that we know nothing about. Now, as I wrap up, I just, I have to say, as I have read and listened to all of these really, really smart men uh, write and talk passionately and debate passionately and interview with other equally or even more intelligent individuals arguing their case for natural selection, they seem to find it impossible impossible to talk about and describe natural selection without it beginning to sound like an invisible personal force with an agenda. Every time. It's almost impossible not to load up the discussion with things that personify this invisible, relentless, focused, disciplined force that resulted in the earliest forms of RNA and then DNA to the point to where we have the world and life as we see it today. But perhaps that is the way we got here. Now, if you're someone who's lost or or losing faith in God, here's my hunch. It really doesn't have anything to do with any of that. It isn't that once you just had this extraordinary, just life-giving faith in God and God is faithful and whatever, and then you read a book on one day and then overnight you just lost your faith. In fact, I would suggest that your struggle with faith has virtually nothing to do with atheism or creation of the universe or where did first life come from and all that. In fact, as I went through some of these things, even some of you that are wrestled or you don't believe go, well, I I don't necessarily believe that and I don't think you can live that way. But just because I don't believe in God doesn't mean that I have to believe that. But the super smart guys say, oh, yes, you do. But if you're someone who's struggling or has struggled Maybe one foot out the door of faith or you've walked away at one point. For most of you, if you're honest, this is not the root of it. Now, you may have used some of these arguments and even some of these authors to kind of support your arguments, especially with your parents and your family, okay, or the people who aren't as smart as you are. But if for just a moment we could set aside all of those defensive arguments, at the end of the day, the reason you lost faith or the reason you're struggling with faith is far more personal than any of this high-level academic stuff. It's not that you find atheism more appealing. It's just that that your version of faith or religion or version of Christianity that you grew up with lost its appeal. And at times, when compared with what science is telling us, appears as if it can't even be true. In other words, you've lost or are losing faith in a version of God. And if you'll come back next week... If you'll hang with me, I'm going to do my best to convince you that the God you quit believing or are losing faith in never existed to begin with. Perhaps you had the wrong God, as arrogant as it may sound. And next week you may discover that you are absolutely right to walk away. 
because the God you walked away from never existed to begin with. So my purpose today was to simply start the conversation on the far end, to shine a light on the only alternative, which may be true, that your sense of self, every decision you felt like it was your, your free decision, your free choice, it was an illusion. It may be that you have no value, and neither do your parents or your kids, or your friends, or your grandchildren, your co-workers. It's possible that we are living in the matrix, waiting on Neo. This is all an illusion, okay? It's possible that there's no absolute truth and that there's no justice in trying to make sure people are treated correctly. We're just making that up. It's all an illusion. We're nothing more than chemistry and biology driven by the laws of physics and nature and determinism. But here's what I know about most of us. We hope not. We, we hope there's more. It's just like three or four weeks ago, I, I was uh, having a drink with a young ethnostic. He's somewhere between atheist and agnostic. Uh, and, uh, he, and he admitted, he's like, I, 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 he said to me, I, I kind of hope you're right. Like, I, I hope there is a good God. I, I hope there's something more than this, because otherwise that sucks. And for many of you, like me, you hope that there's more. But I would contend that your only hope for that hope is God. So who needs God? Perhaps we all do. 